You're cruising fast into your mid-30s. You have a job that is stable, blue-collar, safe, but also boring and somewhat unfulfilling. You want something more. You have many plans and ideas, but as you hit 31 years old, you realize that you won't have time for everything you want to do. It's a somewhat sad realization. Nevertheless, you have to choose. Then it comes to you. You want to write a piece of fiction that is different. Something you would like to read yourself. Something that would feel dangerous to write. Something out of the norm. Something unique. Something different. But so far, you only have that vague outline. No story. No plot. Not yet. Then you go camping with a couple of friends, and by chance, you and your friends land yourselves in a fight with some other campers. Later, when you're back at work on Monday, the reactions from your co-workers, when they see that you have a black eye, is one of reservation and trepidation with a hint of fear. Ah, the plot of your story begins to develop. It festers in your mind, building, finding its footing, gaining energy. Those are the seeds that are the beginning of what will later become the novel that changes your life. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, authors, and transgressionalists. I am your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and today we're digging into Chuck Palahniuk's debut novel, Fight Club. The unreal is more powerful than the real, because nothing is as perfect as you can imagine it, because it's only intangible ideas, concepts, beliefs, fantasies that last. Stone crumbles, wood rots, people, well, they die, but things as fragile as a thought, a dream, a legend, they can go on and on. The first edition of Fight Club was published on August 17, 1996. Here's a synopsis. The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Every weekend, in the basements and parking lots of bars across the country, young men with white-collar jobs and failed lives take off their shoes and shirts and fight each other barehanded just as long as they have to. Then they go back to those jobs with blackened eyes and loosened teeth and the sense that they can handle anything. Fight Club is the invention of Tyler Durden, projectionist, waiter, and dark anarchic genius, and it's only the beginning of his plans for violent revenge on an empty consumer culture world. Chuck Palahniuk was born Charles Michael Palahniuk on February 21, 1962 in Pasco, Washington, but would grow up with three siblings in a mobile home in Burbank, Washington. His initial school years were not his most motivational as he had a very hard time learning to read and write. He would actually become the last in his class to master said skills, which he finally did in the third grade. But after having achieved these hard-worn abilities, he was so relieved and filled with joy that he decided that he would just make a career out of it already then, though it would take an additional two and a half decades before he got into writing fiction. 
His family life seemed unspectacular on the surface, but there was a very violent and tragic family secret in his lineage. Chuck's grandfather had shot and killed his wife, Chuck's grandmother, when Chuck's father, Fred, was but a child. Fred had hid under his bed after hearing the shotgun blast which killed his mother. Terrified, he would remain under the bed as his deranged father entered his room, looking for him, calling for him. Fred managed to remain quiet and still enough to go unnoticed. Not able to find his son, Fred's father turned the shotgun on himself and pulled the trigger. As a child, Chuck's father made a point of making him understand that his decisions had consequences. Once he even went as far as to threaten him with chopping off a finger with an axe for something he'd done. At that moment, it became incredibly clear to him that he himself was the cause in his own life and that he had to take responsibility for himself for the rest of his life and not blame anyone else for the things he would do. He would go on to graduate from the University of Oregon School of Journalism in 1986. He liked observing people, registering their mannerisms, and trying to understand what drives people to behave the way they do, something he would bring with him when he started writing fiction. He didn't work as a journalist for long, however, as he felt more comfortable in blue-collar jobs, which he would later find unfulfilling as well. Quote, People don't want their lives fixed. Nobody wants their problems solved, their dramas, their distractions, their stories resolved, their mess cleaned up. Because what would they have left? Just the big scary unknown. End quote. What followed college graduation was a miserable time in his life. There he was, fresh out of college, working the blue-collar job that wasn't particularly fulfilling and feeling desperate to do something greater with his life. One day, someone on the street invited him to a church. He went. This particular church had a giving tree, one that was covered in ornaments. One would pluck an ornament from the tree and receive an assignment. On the particular ornament he plucked from the tree, it said, Take a hospice patient on a date. The idea was that you would go to a hospice and ask someone who was dying if you could take them to see the ocean or family or something of the sort. More often than not, however, the request from the patients was to be taken to their support groups. Well, as requested, he would drive his date to the support group and he would have to stay at the meeting as he was also their ride back. Sitting there in the group, no matter how hard he tried to hide himself, the others present would assume that he had whatever illness everyone else had. Now, what made it even more difficult was how there was no polite way for him to tell the others that he wasn't suffering from it, so he just let them believe it. Then the next day he would go back to work feeling really good, no matter how bad or boring his life was or how bad things had turned out with his journalism degree and all his student loans that he still owed, it was a lot better than suffering from what the people at the groups were suffering from. This would later be incorporated into Fight Club. He eventually resigned from driving hospice patients after one of the patients he'd become especially attached to died. This patient would later inspire the character Denny in his fourth published novel, Choke. He still refers to Denny as his favorite character.
Chuck was 33 years old when he decided to get seriously into writing fiction and signed up with a Portland-based writing group that practiced a technique called dangerous writing under the guidance of its developer, author Tom Spanbauer. The technique uses minimal prose as well as painful personal experiences as its inspiration. Now, according to the group's theory, the test of a good story was simple. If you could take a story to a party and as you told people at the party the concept in simple terms, it became apparent that they resonated with it, or even better, if they began to include their own similar experiences, adding more to the story, you knew you had something worth focusing on. It let you know that the story had a larger appeal and something that others could relate to. By the end of the night, you also had additional ideas and stories from others you could play with. On top of that, it was also a great way to call parties, research. After writing a 700-page opus called Insomnia, If You Lived Here, You'd Be Home, that was never attempted to be published since he wasn't satisfied with it, he began working on what would later become the novel Invisible Monsters. Like Fight Club, the structure of Invisible Monsters, and which would become somewhat of a staple of his, starts at the temporal end. Then it travels back in time with the protagonist explaining how they ended up where they currently find themselves. He sent Invisible Monsters to editors and publishers, and although it impressed most editors who read it, it was rejected on account of its twisted and shocking elements. It would, however, see the light of day in 1999, after he had established himself as a recognizable author. With Invisible Monsters rejected because of its dark themes and provocative style, Chuck decided to write something that he considered even more provocative and intense. He began working on Fight Club. When he plunged into what would eventually become Fight Club, he was working as a diesel mechanic for truck manufacturer Freightliner. Working on the assembly line at Freightliner was tedious and exhausting work, but on the bright side, it allowed free time and space in his mind to dream up stories. After three years, he moved on to a desk job where his job was to write service procedures. That sort of writing made him aware of unpacking the physical aspects of a scene. Most fiction is based on the description of physical acts, and in more minimalistic styles of writing, it's particularly important to describe as much as possible in as few words as possible, a skill writing service procedures for Freightliner helped him develop. He would go on to use elements from this style on the bomb recipe and how-to parts of Fight Club. He had begun with the simple goal to write one decent sentence each week. That eventually turned into a decent story, which later grew into novels. He has also stated that it also helped that he had, at the time, bought a tiny house with no television reception and no cable service, which meant that books became his sole means of entertainment. He was so unimpressed with most of the books he read, however, that he began thinking about what kind of book he himself would want to read. This would spark his creativity. The Story Fight Club, seven pages long at the time, was first published in a book compilation entitled Pursuit of Happiness, which came out in 1995. This initial short story would become chapter number six in the Fight Club novel. He has stated that he started the novel with The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald as his blueprint. 
Three characters, apostolic fiction, big fight scenes instead of party scenes. With the blueprint ready, he could add the numerous elements which would follow. As mentioned earlier, one of the central inspirations occurred after a camping trip with some friends turned violent. The neighboring campers who intentionally camped close to he and his friends began playing very loud music. Chuck and his company asked the campers if they could turn the music down. A request they refused. One thing led to another, which led to yelling, and this escalated into pushing and shoving. Before they knew it, an all-out fistfight ensued. Though being in a fistfight, to put it simply, hurt, it also had been exciting. Then, noticing that people avoided making eye contact with him upon returning to work with bruises and cuts that following Monday, many of his co-workers suddenly wary about approaching him or even talking to him, he realized that the bruises on his face told people that he could lose control. It told his co-workers and therefore society that he didn't necessarily follow all the social conventions that are the norm. This he found to be an interesting concept. He also noticed that there were so few social model novels or stories for men. For women there were many. Females had all these different settings and models where women could come together and talk about their lives and feelings. For men, however, there weren't numerous scripts that depicted a role or a kind of script whereby men could come together and talk about their feelings. Yet another idea of the piece revolved around the concept that men need a second father in their life. The theory is based on the thought that, though you're born with a biological father, who is hopefully loving and supportive, you also need a second chosen father. This father by choice is often perhaps a minister, a teacher, a drill sergeant, or a coach, or someone of the sort. As a young man, you put yourself into a kind of apprenticeship under this second father, learning from him and gathering more skills, both physical and psychological. This is very well depicted in the novel where all these lost men turn up at the ramshackle house in search of leadership and a new alternative life from what could be perceived to be their secondary father, the leader, Tyler Durden. And yet another notion of the story revolves around the existential realization that you are not going to live forever and that you will have to give your life to something. You're living towards death, and your life will be all the more rich if you decide to give your life to something. In the case of Fight Club, the young men give themselves into what they consider to be a greater cause, Project Mayhem, while in Chuck's life, he decided to give his life to writing. Author Charles Bukowski once said, Find what you love and let it kill you. And it very much seems like Polonik subscribes to this concept in order to put meaning into existence. Quote, Big Brother isn't watching. He's singing and dancing. He's pulling rabbits out of a hat. Big Brother's busy holding your attention every moment you're awake. He's making sure you're always distracted. He's making sure you're fully absorbed. End quote. 
Concerning his writing habits and routines, it seems like he didn't have many around the time of writing Fight Club. He didn't hold himself to a strict daily writing schedule, preferring to write only when inspired and then often going on intense writing sessions that could last for weeks. Foregoing much food or liquids, as well as sleep at times, he placed as much focus as possible into his writing when the inspiration hit, trying to ride the wave as long as possible. In regards to revisions, however, he does have a sort of ritual he adheres to. In 2009, he wrote, When I have to do painful revisions, I shave my head. It's like dying, and it makes me feel better about killing passages I've written and still love. The revelation of music being a central part of his writing process, he has stated that Fight Club was mostly written with the Nine Inch Nails album, Downward Spiral, on repeat in the background. When the book was finally finished, he began sending it to publishers. I stated earlier, frustrated about being rejected by publishers with the novel Invisible Monsters, he kept in mind the idea of giving the publishers the middle finger. He desired to write a great book that he found interesting, a book that he wanted to read, but also a book that was so extreme and intense and disturbing that they would flat out reject it. He included anarchism, violence, a counter-consumerist concept, and explosives. His brother Matt, a chemical engineer with Chevron, provided him with the details he needed in order to spell out how the explosives are made. However, vital elements would be removed from the final published edition. He was sure that there would be no takers this time around, but, surprisingly, it caught the interest of publisher W.W. W. Norton. He was naturally over the moon when the book was released. Despite receiving general good reviews and praise, it didn't initially sell very many copies, much to his disappointment. To quote Chuck himself, Fight Club was a huge failure. Most of the hardcovers were going to be pulped. They were unsold when the movie opened, and then the movie was a flop. Now, calling the movie a flop would be putting it harshly. Initially not faring as well as the studio had hoped, the movie would go on to become quite a cult phenomenon, though it would take several years after the initial release for this to occur. In typical fashion, as the movie became more and more a part of pop culture, the book began selling more and more copies. Chuck has later stated that he felt the movie was an improvement of his novel, which is something of a rarity. A little fun fact that can serve as an inspiration for aspiring writers who are finding it hard to find an agent is that despite his fervent search for a literary agent, he didn't get one until after Fight Club was published. Quote, What I want is to be needed. What I need is to be indispensable to somebody. Who I need is somebody that will eat up all my free time, my ego, my attention, Somebody addicted to me, a mutual addiction, end quote. The book remains to be Chuck Palahniuk's most famous and is still widely regarded as a groundbreaking novel. Its allure has passed the test of time and young readers continually pick it up to discover elements which resonate with them. There were many aspects of men's lives not being addressed that he thought were important to be talked about, which 
is why he theorizes that the novel has had such an impact. Once the success of Fight Club flared up and began to sell more and he was able to make a living from it, something he was skeptical about ever being able to do, he would go on to write several more novels. Far from a one-trick pony, he gained more recognition with books such as Survivor and the finally accepted and published Invisible Monsters and in turn has gone on to publish 19 novels. He has also acquired much notoriety for his live readings. From audience members famously fainting when he read the short story Guts to regularly throwing objects like blow-up sex dolls into the crowd, Chuck Palahniuk has established himself as an author of the bizarre and extreme, but always with the message beneath the flash. As a consequence, he has grown to gain a loyal and dedicated fan base that he continues to wow, even at age 60. Let me leave you with this quote from the outlier himself. To begin a new novel, I look for the biggest problem in my life that I can't solve or tolerate. Something that drives me nuts, but I can't fix. Then I find a metaphor that allows me to explore the problem, exaggerating and expanding it beyond reason. I build it up to the worst scenario possible and then find a way to solve it. By the time the book is done, I've exhausted all of my emotions around the original problem. Whatever it was, it no longer bothers me. And typically, during the time of writing, the problem has resolved itself. It's like magic. Try it. It will keep you alive in this world of bullshit. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemour Hardin. We at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can head over to subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page at House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you may think. Until next time. Keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden.